All right. How are we doing today, Milena? Doing, doing good. How are you doing? I'm doing well. So like the rest of us, looks like maybe you're working out of your house. Is that something that you're doing all the time? Do you travel a bunch? What do we, what do, we do? So mostly working from home, um, supporting our clients, but slowly but surely we're starting to travel again. Excellent. Yes, I got to travel this week and last week it was uh, travel locally. It was really nice to see people in, in person. So I, I agree with that one for sure. Looking forward. I got a couple more visits next week. So um, I'm with you. Um, well, as we get uh, into this, we're going to talk about uh, a study that your uh, company has done and some of the, the ways that you've done it and what the results were. But before we do, I always want to get to know my guests a little bit better. And what I would love to know is if you could tell me about a book that you've either read recently or maybe you're in the process of reading right now. So the last book I finished is called A Storm in a Teacup. And it's basically it's written by a, a, phys, a physicist and it just tries to explain the most fundamental uh, laws of physics with, um, you know, normal, common day, you know, things that, you know, everybody can relate to. Hmm. So it, it was pretty cool. So from magnetic fields and how pretty much everything is affected by uh, magnetic fields and electricity to waves and things like that. So it was good because it's... Uh, you know, coming from engineering, I could relate to, you know, yeah, sure, we learn all those those things in school, but how you can explain that to somebody else relating to, you know, day-to-day -day things that we can all relate to. So a storm in a teacup? Yep. All right. That's interesting. I've never heard of that one. I, I've, I've been doing this a little bit now, this question, and I'm getting all kinds of interesting books. So um, <laughs> I just... <laughs> I just, I had heard of one uh, maybe a month ago and I'd never seen it. So I just, uh, about halfway through, um, it's called Bottle of Lies and it's all about the history of uh, the generic drug makers and in the industry. Oh. And uh, it does a lot of just sort of the history of maybe the FDA and how it came into being and why it came into being and, you know, what it did. And it's pretty interesting. It's, it's, it's certainly better than, you know, reading it off of the FDA's website. So. Um, uh, I just put that up on LinkedIn today and I, I, I think it's an interesting book. So, uh, so do you, are you a, a book reader or do you listen to books? I, I read. Oh, good for you. Good for you. I feel like I fall asleep when I read. So, <laughs> <laughs> but that's the reason I read to fall asleep. Yeah, there you go. But I read a lot. <laughs> so do you have a, do you have a stack of unfinished books next uh, to you? Oh, no, no. Uh, whatever book I start, I always finish. Oh, good for you. I always feel like the first two chapters and I'm done. Uh, <laughs> Those are always the best chapters. All right. Awesome. Well, Hey, um, so we're going to talk about this, uh, this, this study that you guys have done at Bioprocess Institute um, on diaphragm valves today. Um, so as, as we get to do that, I just want to learn a little bit more about what you guys are doing. So I've heard you guys described, maybe self-described as the consumer reports of the pharma manufacturing space. Um, so you're not doing vacuum cleaners or, you know, Honda Accords or something like that. You're, you're figuring out what's going on in the pharmaceutical space and what do we need to know about it? So can you share a little bit more about 
what it is that you guys do, maybe this and, and maybe anything else that you guys do as a company? Sure. So the Bioprocess Institute uh, is a consulting testing and training facility. So it started about 12 years ago and was founded uh, by um, Jim Vogel. And Jim has over 35 years of experience in the biopharmaceutical industry, working for a number of the big end users uh, in the industry, most recently for Amgen. And um, I guess out of that experience came kind of a, a need to um, provide answers to things that end users didn't have answers. Um, Jim has also been involved in a lot of the uh, um, standards development, uh, like ASME BPE, and that's where him and I met each other um, many years back. And I had been involved in ASME BPE in my previous job as a manufacturer of uh, components for uh, bioprocessing. And we kind of shared that same feeling that there's so many unanswered questions in some of the things that we use, some that are very simple components that we don't even look at it much. And that could be the thing that can be taking down your entire uh, process. And so that's how, how I, I, I got started working with him too. And that's the fundamental of the company is trying to answer those questions by the means of uh, you know, consulting directly with a specific client that could be an end user, it could be a manufacturer. Mm -hmm. We're creating kind of this bridge of understanding in between manufacturers and end users. And second could be just by doing training sessions. And the third one, which is what we're going to talk about is well, we kind of know what are the unanswered questions in our industry. Why don't we go and do some performance testing and trying to get those answers that can be shared, you know, by, you know, different people and, and they can get the benefit of that information. Mm -hmm. Okay. So today we're going to talk about one of those things, which is the work you guys have done on diaphragm valves. So can you can you start this by sort of telling us why you chose a diaphragm valve? I mean, there's plenty of like sexier things in the industry to <laughs> to study, right? Diaphragm valves are kind of everywhere, and they're maybe boring. I don't know. Maybe you're really into them, but but you guys did this. So what's the what was the reason behind choosing that um, to do the study on? So yes, and, and that's interesting that you said that they're not the sexier things out there and, and you may think of them as well, you know, it's also not the, the uh, most expensive thing out there, and, um, but they can completely take your entire process down and, and create a contamination issue when they fail. Mm -hmm. And there may be humble components, right? But they are because they're the, the diaphragm is actually is sealing your process. So that is what's creating the integrity the, of your process and maintaining a closed system and not just diaphragms, gaskets to the same things. And, yep. uh, and, and, and so when they, they fail, it's the, the, the system integrity what is at stake. And, mm -hmm. and you can lose an entire batch. You can have a contamination issue. And this little component that may have been, you know, maybe a few hundred of dollars to replace it 
may now be costing an investigation that is over a million dollars. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so, the little the littlest thing can have a, a far-reaching, large effect. Right. In fact, in many of these contamination investigations, the two you know um, main suspects that are usually in the board, as people are discussing potential root cause, are going to be gaskets or diaphragm. Mm-hmm. Interesting. All right. Well, I mean, I guess that makes sense. It doesn't need to be the the giant thing. It can be the thing that is the most of. Um, so. I like that. All right. So just so that we are all on the same page and we, um, you know, again, we have a lot of younger people that uh, seem to listen in on the, the podcast. Um, so could we just start off with talking about what it is uh, that a diaphragm valve is and how does it work? And we're going to gonna have you share the screen here to sort of look through a couple of these things. So why don't you walk us through the, the, the whole system here? Sure. So what we have here is a couple of diaphragm valves, and there are three main components. We have the valve body, so that's what is in your piping system, and it mm-hmm. will be either welded or it will be, you know, clamped with a like hygienic a uh, union. Mm-hmm. Exactly. The sandwich here in between is the diaphragm, and this is what creates that feel feeling to the to the environment, and it's also what uh, makes the, the valve actually open and close. And then we have the actuator, which basically the function is to move that, that diaphragm up and down, which we can probably see better on the next slide. So here okay. again, that was that body, that gray thing here. This is the diaphragm, and here's the actuator. So this actuator moves up and down. So when it moves down, this diaphragm ends up against this, that we call it the weir, that's what they're called, weird mm-hmm. style diaphragm. So if you have fluid coming this way, this will come down and close it. So now the valve is closed. And then when when the actuator moves up, then it releases that that pressure and then the fluid can go across the valve. So it's an on-off type valve. And again, you know, we're talking this is what where your process is. So your process is touching the inside of that valve body and it's touching the diaphragm mm-hmm. but it's not touching the actuator and so this diaphragm's got two functions here it's it's closing and opening so it's letting the the you know the flow through or stopping it but it's also sealing here so that you know from the environment so it nothing would come in or out you know of what is inside that piping system Okay, so so for somebody that's listening right now, this is a difficult. Maybe if and you don't want to know what we're talking about, this is a, a difficult thing to uh, put in your brain. Um, but uh, so I would encourage if you if you are listening and you want to understand this a little bit better, you know, to go either onto YouTube and watch this or um, check out the notes on the show. But um, just a couple quick questions, just to get clarity. So we have this gap that's created between the weir and the diaphragm, which is where the fluid flows through. You and then above the diaphragm is where the actuator is. Now that space in and around the actuator inside the the head of the actuator is is there stuff in there, or is that all just air, or what's what's in that space? Well, there would be springs that keep the the tension on it in a piston. That is usually, uh, you know, that you activate it with air. So when air goes into the 
um, the actuator, it pushes that piston down, and then when you release the air, the spring was just going to, I'm sorry, the other way around. So the spring keeps the pressure, and when you put the air, it moves the piston up. So there's two ways you can have normally or normally closed or normally open. But all of the mechanism inside this is not in contact with, with the process. So it's mm -hmm. sealed, actually, by the same diaphragm. So the diaphragm does all of the sealing that needs to happen in, in, in that little system, let's say. Okay, and then, and then as the actuator sort of moves back up, the diaphragm follows it, and is that just by nature of the pressure of the fluid flowing through that pushes it up, or is there some kind of tension built in that allows it to spring up? So when you have what we, what we call a normally closed valve, mm -hmm. a spring keeps the tension on the piston to keep this closed. So mm -hmm. that's what is called normally closed. And then you need energy to make it open. So typically you let air into the actuator somewhere here mm -hmm. that, you know, just the pneumatic pressure is going to push that piston up. Yep. And that's what's going to allow, it's going to make this diaphragm go up. So the piston is on the back of the diaphragm. It's going to be attached to it mechanically. Okay. So, so it is mechan it's mechanically attached to it, to the yes. diaphragm itself. Exactly. So when these, these, these two guys are, let's say, imagine glued together, they're actually yep. kind of screwed. There's so like a little stuff typically in there. So when this guy moves up, the diaphragm moves up. When this guy moves down, the diaphragm moves down. So okay. it depends on a normally closed valve. Uh, is, is a spring that keeps tension down on a normally open valve. That means that you have to do something to close it. Mm -hmm. Actually, is the other way around. So you are going to need air to push the piston down mm -hmm. to close it. And when you remove the air, it will just relax back to the open position. But the most common is typically the normally closed. The spring is always keeping it shut. And when you actuate it because you put air to push this piston here, it will go up against the spring force and would open the valve. All right, awesome. Hey, I, well, I'm gonna skip ahead and just ask a question because I don't think this is one of the items that we cover later on, but uh, if it's a normally opened or a normally closed, is one of them more likely to fail than the other? A normally open or a normally closed? It depends on the application. Okay. So, and it depends also on the cycling, you know, how many, they may be normally one way or the other, but you may be cycling them, you know, multiple times through whatever you're doing, you know, you know through open and closing. Yep. And, but sometimes uh, things that are closed a lot of the time may just have different issues that things that are open most of the time. So they, okay. they, they could be a difference. Yes. All right. It depends. It depends. That's a pretty good answer for most of these things. So, um, all right. So we're going to, we'll back off of this, this visual for now, but um, so one of the things I'm curious about is um, what are the, what are the things that your, you know, the users are going to care about with these valves obviously they want to know that they work right they want them to either stop fluid or allow fluid right as the case may be um and i'm sure as as always with most things you know how much something costs is always a big deal um maybe how they fit into the facility um like like the like a form factor you know some might have a huge body some might have a smaller body so what are what are some of the other big things that a user is going to care about with these 
Well, obviously the one that you mentioned first uh, um, is is um, do they work? Mm -hmm. <laughs> and, and that's that's definitely number one. Uh, and what do what do we mean by work? Right? Well, does it does it close when I want it closed? Mm -hmm. And can I you know or or also you know does it leak through the shell? And you know they have things ripping out of the. Uh, of the system and, and so those are kind of the fundamentals the the second one is more on the regulatory does it have the right pedigree to be used in bioprocess mm. are the materials of construction okay do, do they have the proper biocompatibility so in this sense now we're not just talking about stainless steel right we're also talking about a polymer that diaphragm in there is definitely not stainless steel as we obviously saw, it has to be flexible, right? Mm -hmm. So it's typically an elastomer. It can be what we call a thermoset or a thermoplastic. So it could be materials like EPDM, PTFE, other things. And, and, and it, those have to have the proper biocompatibility to be okay to use in, in biopharma. Mm -hmm. So that would be the second one. So that, you know, without that, you can't even put it in service. So if you don't have that, biocompatibility, USB 88 class 6, for example, don't, don't even look at it. And um, so that would be the, the, the second one. Um, for the most, these valves are kind of the standard of what people use in processing, in, in, in bioprocessing. So you can find thousands of them in each, uh, you know, facility that you go from, from water, uh, systems and, and clean steam all the way to uh, fill and finish. Okay. So they're, they have a very broad, you know, range of uh, applications. Few exceptions would be where perhaps the pressures need to be really high, and so that may just be outside of uh, maybe in some parts of the uh, steam generation systems where you may need some different type of valves. Okay. So... So uh, obviously you guys did this testing. Um, is, there, is there some sort of industry standard um, to test um, this equipment against? Um, so all these different, there's a lot of different manufacturers. I, I think you worked with a few of them, um, probably the, the big ones. So did they have like a, an industry standard that they have to test their um, either diaphragms or actuators or the whole thing against to... Um, to sort of prove that they're okay for the space or is it, is it even more generic than that? Like maybe not pharma, maybe it's other applications as well. Right. So it's, um, it, it's more of the later. So there, there are um, different standards to um, perform tests on valves just to mostly from the point of view of safety that the valve's not going to leak. It's not going to, it's going to be able to seal and it's not going to leak. Those are the two main things that we see other standards dealing with. And most of the manufacturers out there will have testing done according to those standards. Specific to biopharma, the ASME BPE has an appendix. It's a non-mandatory appendix uh, K that is more of a accelerated or simulated um, uh, bioprocess conditions. So basically we're simulating SIP cycles and then just making sure 
is that the valve still function as, as, as intended after, let's say, 50, 100, 500 SIP cycles. That is the only test that we're aware of that is specific to the intended use in biopharma. Where really the um, one of the, the 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 challenges in our industry is the thermal the thermal cycling. Many industries don't have that, but because we have to steam things, you know, uh, we get to make things really hot, and then they have to cool down, and then maybe through the process they're working at ambient temperature, and then you have to steam them. So is that change in the uh, temperature that creates a lot of the stresses and issues? Mm-hmm. So that is somewhat unique. In, in, in our industry, and this test appendix appendix K is basically it's the base of how we did our study, uh, and we through our involvement in BPE we have contributed to the development of that of that appendix, um, but it, it is not mandated. So you, as a manufacturer, as a valve manufacturer, you're not obligated to do that test. Nonetheless, quite a few manufacturers follow it, mm-hmm. or they have started to follow it. Uh, so it's becoming more, uh, uh, more popular, let's say. Okay. All right. So, so as, as you were just saying, this BPE is Appendix K. Um, that's, you sort of use that as your baseline to do your testing. So could you sort of show us what you did to, to set up your test? What were the variables? What were the different products? Things like that. Um, and you know, sort of how you would perform your analysis in, in a scientific manner to get um, valid results. I think. Sure. So let's see. If we can share that. Like the test matrix, I think, is what I'd seen. Yes. Just have to find the share button again. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't get rid of it. I swear. No, you not. I just hit it. <laughs> there it is, like a pro. There we go. So, right. So, uh, besides just the test, when we decide to do something like a, like a consumer report, the first thing we have to figure out is, well, who do we want to test? Mm-hmm. So, through our experience in the industry and through surveys and with the term, okay, who are the people that are, you know, the, the more kind of popular out there? But also, who are the people that are coming with something that seems new or perhaps, you know, sounds like could be better? So why don't we give those a try? Okay. And, and also, uh, what materials and what sizes? So that's how you get your permutations. So what we ended up with was a ballpark of 160 diaphragms that were tested. Mm-hmm. Two of the... Most common materials that are used, 82 were EPDM, 78 were PTFE. And then we pick what we call the primary size. So where we're going to do most of the experiments so that they're comparable, and then which was a one inch. And then we have a subset of other sizes just to see how much they ease depart from the behavior of the primary size. That's how we do different permutations that way. And then we selected some OEM uh, manufacturers for each one of those. And also the aftermarket replacement uh, diaphragms that are available. Okay. So that was, let's say, how we got started. So again, if you're on the podcast, you can't really see this, but we're sort of looking at a graphic. It's a test matrix. And it starts on the left, 
this many diagra uh, diaphragms, 160, and then broken out in half with 82 EPDM uh, of all different sizes, and then 78 PTFE, all different sizes. And then each of those are broken out to uh, OEM uh, manufacturers like Amu and ITT and Saunders, and then um, uh, aftermarket like uh, um, Diaphragm Direct and James Walter and Newman. So. So you have sort of this tree that's going out um, to try to get a, a broad spectrum of, of uh, diaphragms uh, from across the industry. Okay, so that's the test matrix. And then you had like these different exposure conditions um, right. that you had them exposed to. So again, uh, the, the, the test is mostly based on ASMEVP appendix K, which is a, um, steam cycling and until recently was also combined SIP and CIP cycling. So the, 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 cycle, the cycles, you know, how long and what temperature and what chemicals and what concentration, that's basically given by, by the, uh, the appendix. Mm -hmm. But so we, we, um, so we base it that way, but we had some other milestones too. So there were some values we just tested to 100 SIPs and then we looked at them. So we went all the way to 500 SIPs. So there are certain things that you cannot be disassembling all the time to try mm -hmm. to check. So you kind of need to, to pick a few that you're going to be testing earlier on because if you get to the 500 SIPs and they're all, you know, done, <laughs> you yeah. really don't know where, when they fail, right? So we need those kind of in-between milestones to figure out where did they fail. So all I know now is that by 500 it's all bad, right? Right. So that's why we have the uh, these different. So it gives you sort of a bracket and and a sort of a sanity check on the test to make sure you're not wasting your time on a whole bunch of other ones. Then essentially, mm -hmm. right? Right. Yeah. Um, since you can't you can't have like a, a little micro machine man inside with a camera um, looking at it during all these processes. This is the only way to do that. Right. It, yes. And um, then we besides just the the straight. SIP, we had different um, uh, combined SIP with CIP cycles, and we compared that information to also the ones that were only to SIP, see what trend we could see with that. Mm -hmm. Aside from that, we did um, um, another one that we consider was very important for the industry, which is only in contact with uh, um, turbulent hot water. Mm -hmm. So you would know an application probably with water that is yeah. like <laughs> yeah, yeah. hot, <laughs> yeah. right? So I've seen it a couple times. Right. So that's our typical, you know, um, uh, hot hot wifi loop, and those valves because it's a self-sanitizing system, they are usually not steamed. They don't see SIP cycles. Yeah. So we wanted to answer that of uh, well, are are there problems with a certain material or valve manufacturer that you shouldn't be using or that, or that is absolutely better and you should be using precisely in that kind of application. So in that case, what we did was just a constant 670 hours of uh, a recirculating water at a certain flow rate uh, through those valves. Was that no, like it, a, like at 80 degrees C or 85 C, like a, like a normal feet. loop would yep, be? It, exactly, okay. exactly. And it was at least uh, five feet per second that yep. we all used to design these things. So, and then we had um, another was similar, but it was with static steam. So rather than being cycling, you know, 
you know, you heat up, you cool down, heat up, just just to keep the steam there for 670 hours to see what happens to to the diaphragm. So, uh, so that would be more like a like a deadheaded scenario, or or steam flowing past it for 670 hours. This was a deadheaded scenario. Okay. And then we have finally a separate chemical exposure test where, you know, rather than just looking at what happens with CIB cycles, we just look at um, if the diaphragm is going to dissolve, if we put it into a caustic solution or phosphoric acid, and then there's, they stay in there. This is actually um, according to an ASTM standard to check for chemical uh, compatibility. And, and so that got us another set of results. Okay. All right. Lots of, it's a lot of different kinds of tests there for get some good, good information. And now you have your, this is like your racetrack slide. <laughs> right, exactly. So what we, we're saying is that, you know, if, if you think of a racetrack, that's what we do with these valves. So they go into this, um, our little SIP kit, and then they just, they are continu continuously exposed to the cycles. And then we have certain milestones where it's like the pit stops, right? Where, okay, we're going to take some of them and see how they're doing and whatever. Some may continue. Some, if we want to disassemble it, do every, you know, possible uh, analysis that may be just to where they stop. So we started with 160 diaphragms here. We had 11 that we did 50. SIP cycles, 50 CIP cycles, then we had 40 that we got to 100 SIPs, and then we continue, you know, all the way. The majority were tested all the way to the 61 SIP cycles. And, and besides, we have the ones that we had the chemical exposure or the hot water exposure, steam exposure. And at the end, we had 156 diaphragms. So there were four that didn't even make it through the get-go. Okay. So that's, that's the difference. So you can find that. You can find that you stole it. You put that diaphragm and everything, and it didn't seal from the, from the very beginning. So there's no point of, uh, you know, continuing the test at that point. Mm -hmm. So it can be another drop, drop here right in the, uh, you know, just you're going to start the, the, uh, your race car at the, at the race. And, it, and, and, and basically you're just pulling, pulling <laughs> off to the pit stop as exactly. they go. Yeah. <laughs> right. And you're and like, you Hey, you're done racing. I got to change your tires and check on you. So, exactly. so as you go through, how many I mean, were these, were these uh, fully assembled diaphragm valves or were they just the diaphragm themselves? What was, uh, what was it different depending on the test? So like your chemical exposure, was that just the diaphragm sitting in a bucket of chemicals or was it like the full system, the full like diaphragm valve um, um, setup with like the, the chemical sort of injected in there and held for 670 hours? Right, so in all cases, except the chemical exposure was the assembled valve. So okay. we had valves from all of the different manufacturers and put the diaphragms in there, follow their assembly instructions. The only exception was with the chemical exposure was just basically uh, the, the, the diaphragm if itself was submerged in the uh, whatever um, solvent we were using and left there for 670 hours. So that's the only one that wasn't the complete valve. Okay. I'm, I'm interested, like, 
you know, from one manufacturer to the next, that they all say they're EBDM. I mean, I would think that they would all come out exactly the same, right? Oh, that... not at all. Not at all. Interesting. Very interesting. They are very different. EPDM actually just means uh, it, it's uh, uh, the type of elastomer that you're using. It doesn't even mean a specific composition. Right. So that's, I mean, that's, that's something for, for people to, to understand because generically speaking, you just sort of specify EPDM, right? You don't necessarily specify a very specific kind or uh, whatever, right? It's yes. And, and for, yeah. And for sure this test, and even just the chemical exposure will show you that EPDM from valve manufacturer A and EPDM for, from valve manufacturer B um, perform very differently. And not, hmm. not, not just because on the chemical, you don't really have the valve in, in, you know, in the mix. And you will see that the materials just react differently to the exposure. Hmm. And that is part of what becomes part of the performance, uh, that, that the difference in performance that we see. Oh, they're, they're not all created equal. Apparently. All right. So, um, I think you. I think you have one more that I was interested in seeing. Um, oh yeah, here you go. So these okay. are the these are the things that you're actually measuring, right? Right. So you know, once it is, you know, how we do the test. So we saw the racetrack, and now what are we going to look for once we do the test? So we just look at it and throw it away. So no, these are the then the things that we do to evaluate that performance. Um, number one is sealability, and it, do we have pneumatic integrity? So that means that seal, you know, what the valve is closing, that's what we call the seat, the weir. So can we actually close it, and then we don't see any liquid coming, you know, downstream or, or air in this case, because it's a pneumatic test mm -hmm. that is, you know, zipping through. Uh, and then we have... Um, also integrity on the shell. So this is at the end, you know, the end here at the border of the diaphragm where it's sealing, you know, sandwiched together, you know, with the valve body and the actuator. And we don't want anything leaking to the outside. And so that's, that is the shell integrity. So we don't want these things that are leaking. And here's kind of a, you can see like a bubble coming out of a, a valve that it was supposed to be in the closed position. Yeah. And those integrity tests can be done with air or they can be done with water. So that's the first thing. This is, this is what we call, you know, if, 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 if you fail any of these, you don't have the basics at that point. So, so this, is the, this is the does it work. This is the does it, it work. It does it work question. Right. So, so like if, you're, if your actuator isn't working correctly, uh, independent of your diaphragm, there's a pretty good chance it's not going to be closing or opening the way it needs to, right? So, um, right. so we have we have how well is it actually actuating and creating that uh, and creating that, and then it has you know how well is the body squeezing down on the the diaphragm itself and and keeping um, any of the fluids from getting out or potentially I guess getting something in that would be interesting. Um, and then how well does it like sit on the weir and, and stop, stop fluid from moving between one, from one side to the next. Right. So usually when you have a sealability problem is game over. Yeah. Uh, 
And then we, this is, okay, does it work? And this one is more like, does it really work? <laughs> and that's uh, what we call entrapment. Entrapment risk is actually when your your ceiling in, in the diaphragm, you can probably see it better in this one, is is on, on this on this edge here. Mm -hmm. And um, you can see that from that edge where it's supposed to seal to where the holes are, where you, you have your uh, bolts that are sandwiching that diaphragm together, mm -hmm. there's quite a lot of room, right? Mm -hmm. So let's say this seal is not working very well. And like here, we just put some soiling media through and obviously made it through it. But this is not necessarily going to come out that you can see it as an integrity shell problem. Right, the right. valve is not leaking, but it's trapping stuff there in between. And when that valve opens and closes, there is a potential, the same way that stuff went there, that stuff can come out and contaminate your next batch. Mm -hmm. So entrapment is a real problem because you don't see it. So if that's still lurking in the dark, waiting to contaminate your process. It's, so not, knowing, it's not evident. It's not it's evident. It's not evident. Correct. Right. So, and, and so in most cases, failing entrapment, so if you're already getting things in there, then it's also like a, it's game over. And knowing when that may start happening, it, it can really save a lot of uh, contamination uh, from happening. The other problem with that is also for the same reason. Once it's in there, it's kind of trapped, right? So that's what we call it entrapment. So you can't clean that. You can CIP that valve until the cows come home, as we say in Wisconsin, and it would still <laughs> not clean that. Mm -hmm. So okay. so this, this inspection picture, again, somebody listening can't tell, but she's got this picture of the, you know, this opened up diaphragm valve and, and you did like the CSI blacklight on this to show, you know, like a luminescent, like where um, it had failed, where um, some soil or something had gotten beyond that, um, that knife edge there. So like, is, is that, is that what people do on site? I mean, do they open it when they change diaphragms on some, some basis and they're inspecting, do they do that? Or do they just open it up and look at it and eh, it looks clean to me. So is could you could you share what that looks like at a site? Yeah, so it would depend on what the the the, the soil is. Some people can actually see product that was left in there, mm -hmm. but by, by the time you take it apart and figure that out, your problem already happened, right? So it's been there probably for a while, and and at that point, people are going to replace the diaphragm uh, because they have disassembled the valve anyway. So. Mm -hmm. The way we do it, um, so in the, in the case of uh, on-site, it depends on what your media is and whether you'll be able to see it or not. What if it's a water valve? I mean, you just seen Wi-Fi, for example. I, I, I doubt that you're going to see, you know, once that evaporates, what are you going to see? You don't see anything. But right, that doesn't right. mean that something could have not got entrapped. So what we do in this test is basically so it's a soiling media, so and it's a fluorescent. Uh, uh, media and we just basically uh, run it through the line and at, at a certain pressure for a whole hour and so once we're done then we just let it dry so mm -hmm. it, it, it's um, you know it's soluble in water so we just run it you know it's like you have a dye 
in, in a bucket of water. So that's basically what we're doing. We're passing that dye through it. And then once it, it dries out, what is left is that fluorescent uh, residual. So if the water was able to make it through any of those, you know, those healing points, the fluorescent uh, uh, residue there is going to stay there. That's not going to evaporate. And then with a UV light, we're able to see it. Okay. All right. I keep, I keep knocking you off your game. So last one is this visual, <laughs> visual yeah. condition. Right. So visual can also be important. There's um, um, different degrees of how bad a visual condition is. So you can have things so extreme, like this, this diaphragm has a cut through it. So that's a problem. Obviously, now you're not maintaining any integrity. A hole in your a, diaphragm, oh, not good. A hole in, not, not good <laughs> under <Okay>. any circumstances. <laughs> Write that but one down. Write that yep. one down. Got it. <laughs> but there are some things that may not be as dramatic, and, and sometimes people panic. It may just be discoloration. That doesn't necessarily mean that anything bad happened. Okay. So more grays, you know, it's not black and white with visual condition, more grays in there. While with sealability, it's black and white. It seals or it doesn't seal. And entrapment is close to almost the black and white, unless for whatever reason you have an application where you say, eh, I don't, I don't really care. Mm-hmm. Are there established are there established criteria for for this space like that this is a black and white issue or is it really just like a judgment thing? I mean, again, if it's leaking, that seems pretty easy to determine as a problem. Or if it's got a hole in it, right? That seems easy, but is there like a uh, some like a regulatory um, type criteria that people would follow for that? Well, there is, but it requires interpretation, right? Because the FDA tells you you cannot do, you cannot have anything that would adulterate the process or the, the drug product or the process to make mm-hmm. it. And so then you have to interpret that to that visual condition. I mean, maybe what I have after using, let's say, an EPD and diaphragm is some black residue because it kind of a, it was gluing to the stainless steel and it's quite a lot of it. Where does that go? That mm-hmm. goes somewhere. Does it go into your product? It can. So, or do you have a way to mitigate that uh, okay. later on the process? So that's, those are the judgment calls that people would need to do. But ASME BPE gives some criteria about visual condition that is acceptable or not. And we at the Bioprocess Institute created a, a modified one that would look into a little bit more detail uh, uh, of what um, BPE is recommending. Okay. But again, it always has to be understood in terms of what your application is. Mm-hmm. Well, and that makes sense. I mean, what BPE says sort of turns into a little bit of a gospel, right? And then it's kind of a rule. What you say is, is helpful <laughs> to better understand it rather than just now everybody has to do a certain thing. Um, all right. Awesome. So I think there was one more um, that I wanted to see. It was, what's your next one here? This one. All right. So yeah. this, this is like, how do you, you know, okay. So sealability is important. Is sealability more important than, you know, one of the other things? So like how, how do you actually weight that stuff to, to determine a score for these guys? Right. Right, exactly. So um, there were two things on, on that we did. 
in um, originally what we created was kind of a scorecard for each diaphragm so that then you can compare scores so then somebody's going to end up with a better score than the other guy and yep. then that's how you would determine okay these guys are probably better and then we also did an analysis that was just based on failure rates but on, on this one which is with the purpose of comparing different manufacturers we gave some weight to those uh, potential failures mm -hmm. saying that integrity is by far the most important thing Mm-hmm. The seat, uh, pneumatic seat, pneumatic shell, and uh, hydraulic seat integrity. The scores in there, okay, this is, does it work, right, definitely. Uh, the valve's not leaking. So we gave that a lot more weight than the other things. Even in treatment, uh, we gave, gave it a significant weight. But in treatment, when, when we looked at the data, you know, there's going to be some trends on how that is also related to uh, shell integrity. Right. So er it's not just one or the other. Yeah. Everybody has shell integrity has entrapment. Mm -hmm. But not everybody has entrapment has shell integrity. So sometimes you don't see it. Uh, and then the visual, we gave it a certain uh, percentage as well. So what that allows us to do is that for each single manufacturer and material, we can create a chart like this where mm -hmm. we have a score from, you know, the best score is 10. And then, and then based on that, so each, each one of these, it, it, it would get a, its own score from 1 to 10. Uh, some are just basically, it's going to be all or nothing. Yep. <laughs> some have more grading between, like the visual, you can get a score of 5 or maybe 7. And, um, and then that multiplied by that weight that we gave each one of them is what creates these graphics and the overall score. So this particular material manufacturer had this eight point something score when when it got to 100 SIP cycles. Mm -hmm. so by the time it made it to 500 SIP cycles, it was maybe like 7.2 something like that. And so the also, score the score is independent of the test. The score is its it's its own thing, and then. Um, almost like don't even look at what the test was. Just look at the look at the look at the the valve or the the diaphragm. Score it, and then it goes back. You know, whatever test it was is what it was. Yeah. So the idea is more that if if I have manufacturer A, I want to compare it to manufacturer B. If manufacturer B has these bars are higher, then they're better. But compared to the same exposure, right? Yeah. So I want to see. If it's better, if was it 100 SIPs or was it 500 SIPs? But technically, so technically though, if, if you had 100 SIP or 500 SIP, in theory, you would always expect the score to be lower on the 500 SIP than the 100 SIP, right? That is correct. Okay. Yes. yes. All right. All right. Awesome. All right. I think that works. So that's a, that's, that's, that's really good. So this is how you get in your consumer reports, the red circle with the little white dot or the half black you know, circle that Consumer Reports does. This is this is uh, the Bioprocess Institute version of these things. So, so, so this is how you did it. So, all right. So, for those that are listening or watching or whatever right now, we we're not going to tell you who won. That's not going. That's not what's going to happen here. But um, if you want to know who won, you're going to have to you're going to have to follow up with Melena after this interview. But um, what kind of results did we get? I mean, to, again, I think we talked when I 
mentioned the idea of EPDM being EPDM and you said, no, not really. Um, you know, it, it seems like a Ford Chevy thing when I visit a lot of places. Oh, we use these guys. We use these guys. Yeah. You know, some people swear by them. Some people swear by this one company and other place swears by a totally different one and they both hate the other one. You know, is it is there really a big difference? You know, um, so when you look at these results, how wide of a difference did we see? Yes. So so the kind of results that you're going to see is you 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 can see their manufacturers that falling in, you know, this is like, uh, you know, from unacceptable to an acceptable score in suitability, entrapment, and visual conditions, you would see that there is a range. So some people do a lot better, but there's always the one that didn't do that well. Mm -hmm. And um, sealability is the same where most of the people were okay for the longest time. Entrapment starts to divide the, the good ones and the bad ones. And you see a lot more people that fall kind of in the middle range in a lot less that are still in the green area. And now mm -hmm. you get some pretty bad boys here in the unacceptable. And, and same thing with the uh, visual, visual conditions. There is much more granularity there. And you can see, for example, with EPDN, we have quite a few that fall into the, the unacceptable, you know, with a lot of uh, EPDN left on the weird. Or sometimes we've seen things like that, that, you know, you kind of need the uh, somebody really strong to remove that diaphragm from the, from the valve body. Yeah. So, so again, if you're listening to this, um, we just got a, you know, uh, basically a bar, a bar graph kind of visual of these different categories, sealability, entrapment, and then the visual condition um, from, you know, the, the low end of red and unacceptable up to the green. And you, you get quite a bit of variety there. Um, and then you have more of the, you know, the, this, this, what's this next one? This is, um, this is a failure. Yeah. So related to, did I jump ahead? Uh, well, you're at the results of the study failure, um, chart. So you got brand a through brand F. Right. Mm -hmm. So this is like, uh, uh, we're just looking at the percentage of failures. These are only the what we call the big failures. These are the integrity and entrapment failures. Okay. So it's not even considering the visual and how you want to interpret. These that. are game over failures. These aren't. Oh, it would be nice game, if it was prettier. Yeah. <laughs> These are the game over failures, and even on those, we can see that we have some brands that this is at the end. Uh, this was actually through all of the different exposures, the hot water, the static steam, the 500 SIPs, the 100 SIPs, the combined CIP, SIPs, and all the different ones that we did. We had some brands that never had any of the big failures all through the test. And okay, so I just want to make sure I understand this. So again, we keep this generic. So we're talking on this one about material. So this is material A. So we don't know if this is EPDM or PTFE, right? That's right. Um, mm -hmm. But it's, it is a, one of those two materials and you have uh, one, two, three, six different brands using right. that material, whether it's the name brand like Gamu ITT, or if it's the off, um, um, I'm, I'm blanking on the word I'm looking for, but like, you know, your replacement diaphragms from 
uh, lesser known brands, let's just say. Um, and how often or what percentage of the tests did they fail? You had all these different tests and what percentage of those tests did they at least ultimately fail? That's correct. That's okay. correct. And then we have a range that people that didn't fail any to brand F that failed six to seven percent. Six so two thirds of the tests were failed by one of these brands. Exactly. Wow. That's not a good record. <laughs> so that's that's they're definitely not all created equal, even if it was the same type material. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a that's a pretty big change. So when you used um when you used uh, uh um I'm I'm struggling here with the word um for whatever reason you know the replacement um the replacement parts mm-hmm. this is um when you did you put those into um one of the name brand valve bodies? Yes, that's correct. They're that's how you did it. Going to yeah a specific valve, whether it's an ITT or Gamu or Saunders. That's, that's what they're uh, intended for, yes. Okay, all right. So the, all right. Wow. what we call replacement diaphragms, they don't make the valves, they just make the diaphragms. Right, okay. Um, I'm trying to think, was there another one that went with this? I think, I think that was so. it. Uh, this one is actually an interesting one. Uh, it's a spider web, uh, kind of hard to describe, but in this, basically, if you look from the center to... So the outside is the number of SIP cycles. Okay. On on each one of these uh, uh, lines of different colors is is one of the different uh, failure modes. So the blue is the uh, acid integrity. The orange is a shell integrity. The oh. gray is entrapment, and the yellow is visual. So on on each corner. It looks like an octagon or, well, something like more than an octagon. It's got more than that. Um, is each brand. So when all of the dots on that brand are right on the 500 SIPs, which was the max that we tested for, mm-hmm. that means that it made it basically all the way to 500 SIPs without any issues with seat shelf entrapment or visual. Mm-hmm. Here so we have one that the brand example, A is all of them. Yeah, for example, that must have been the one that we had the zero in the other graphic. That's the one. Yeah. <laughs> probably the one. And but you can see that in some of them, that's not the case. So if I wanted to know, for example, let's see brand C, and brand C says that up to 500 SIPs, they were okay with the seat. Mm-hmm. A little not so okay with the shell. So maybe I want to replace this valve, this diaphragm, before I get to 500 SIPs. But mm-hmm. oh, actually, by 400 SIPs, we already could see entrapment issues. And if I really care about the visual, by 350 SIPs, they were already having some significant visual. Um, Issues. So this may be a brand that I may want to replace. Yeah, something between 300 and 350 SIPs. So we think this is a great um, way for people not to waste their time replacing diaphragms too soon or too late. But the point here is that it, there is no recipe that you can use for all the brands and whatever material. 
this is dependent on the material and dependent on the brand. Mm. So, then, so I, I had another podcast um, uh, on maintenance 4.0 and, and in relation to pharma 4.0 and sort of applying science um, and data to how you maintain your facility and how you take care of your equipment. And um, I think, you know, one of the, it, it, it sounds great. Um, everybody would love to do that kind of stuff. And at the end of the day, it's like, but how, I mean, how do I do that? You know, you need data, you need data and results before you can come up with the right amount of cycles before you have to change something or inspect something or whatever. So what you've done here is you've put together a composite for all of these different things to go, Hey, well, you know, this isn't perfect and there's other variables we don't know, but you know, this seems like a really good starting point to base some of that off of rather than just saying every year, right. Um, exactly. or every six months or every thousand cycles or whatever random thing that you decide to pick that may or may not be based on anything in reality. Um, that's right. And I think that was the inspiration of all the work that we've been doing was exactly that, so that we can, you know, if every facility would need to develop the data to come up with this chart, it's hundreds of thousands of dollars, each mm -hmm. one. And, and so we thought that there was a lot of uh, col col collaboration just mm -hmm. by trying to, you know, put what people use the most and give them the basics of it. So something that we've done a lot is that out of this data that we have in the study, we can do bridge studies for specific clients that may say, hey, this is great, but now my steam temperature is a little higher. How do I bridge that to this information? Mm -hmm. And then that's a study that doesn't cost as much as you know doing the, the, the whole thing. Right. So that's where we see See the value of uh, you know we're all kind of using the same brand and in very similar conditions. I mean, mm -hmm. um, so that that's the purpose of having more of a standardized uh, test. And we've seen that people have been able to move from just a uh, 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 time period uh, preventive maintenance, like okay, we're going to do a six months period to more of a trend analysis and um, based on maybe it's not the time, but it's the number of um, SIP cycles. And, and then again, just exactly as you said, if you want to do that and not do it, well, I'm going to do it every six months because that's what we always do, then uh, you need the data to support that. Mm -hmm. so, but do you imagine somebody that is doing preventive maintenance, call it once a year, there aren't so too many applications out there where you will see 500 SIP cycles in a year. Mm -hmm. Sometimes we already say that 100 is, you know, quite a lot. Maybe 100 in a year, yeah, it's, in, it's uh, something that people see more often. Right. And so now imagine you're changing this brand A that nothing, nothing happened to it mm -hmm. all the way to 500 cycles, and you're changing it every maybe less than hundred cycles because you're doing it on this, you know, I have to do it every, you know, once a year, all the diaphragms are replaced because we're not going to take any risk. Now, if you have this data to support it, you may just say, well, okay, no, we're not going to do it every year. We're going to do it every two years, three years, whatever, that uh, you feel uh, comfortable with your risk level. And uh, that is an enormous amount of savings 
not just on the diaphragm, but it's on the time that it takes to disassemble these valves and mm -hmm. replace the diaphragm and put them back together. So, so to that, you know, um, I guess to that, what you've done on this study is it's been um, exposure cycles, temperatures, all these different things. Now it's, it's tough to simulate number of years um, or time uh, without actually taking that much time. Do, do you have a way of approximating if age has an effect on this beyond just the exposure itself um, for these materials? Like, so you might, you might say, you know, this material without any, anything else is, is nothing's really going to change in any meaningful way for 10 years. But once you start exposing it, does, is there enough, you know, tiny degradation so that that's not really true anymore. And then, you know, the lifespan of, uh, of the meaningful life of that um, polymer starts to become a problem. Does that make sense? I don't know if I asked a good question there. Yeah. So, the materials would have a certain shelf life. Okay. And that's obviously, you know, that's um, it's a different consideration to to what we're doing here. But yes, if it's going to take you 20 years to do 500 SIP cycles, I'm pretty sure that diaphragm is not going to be any good because the shelf life for most of these things is no more than 10 years. Okay. So, yeah, you've got to have that consideration as well, of course. Okay. Yeah, I just didn't know. I don't know if there's a way to approximate, you know, over time how that ultimately would, you know, okay, it's 10 years, but is it really, even, even though it passed all your 500 cycle tests, is it really more like three once you've done this because it just starts to wear it down a little bit and you can't see that? Um, probably not an easy thing to measure. No, I mean, some of these materials really don't degrade just, um, like PTFE would have very little degradation over time. They tend to have very long shelf lives. Okay. Uh, but some elastomers, uh, they usually, and, and most manufacturers will provide a shelf life for that diaphragm. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, and, but it is in the years. Uh, and it's usually, yeah, it's in the neighborhood of 10 years. So, okay. That's a long time. Um, yeah. All right. So this is great. So this study, um, this is something that somebody can, can buy the a study so that it doesn't say brand A, brand B, right? That's correct. <laughs> Anymore. <laughs> You'll you find this, out who brand A is. <laughs> yeah. You get, you get the big reveal. The curtain will open up on this slide and you can see who it actually is. Right. So right. Uh, that's something that somebody could, could reach out to you and buy from you. What, what are some of the other ways you like help manufacturers with this information? Like, um, so to me, I'm, I'm looking like, oh, it sounds like we all should buy brand A, right? So, I mean, it's, it's not that simple. It's not that easy, but so what are, what are some of the things that you do with manufacturers to help them, um, with, with the stuff that you've learned? Right. So as, as, uh, we were mentioning in the beginning, so we like, Half of our clients are actually end users, and the other half are manufacturers. Mm -hmm. And so, in, in we've we helped um, manufacturers to identify what was the weak link in their design. Where are they failing? Is it on the entrapment? Is it on something else? Or everything is great, but the visual condition, the EPDM sticking to the metal, or something like that. So once that's identified, then they know what direction they have to 
focus their efforts in and also get some com uh, comparison to what the other guys, how, how are the other guys performing? Mm -hmm. So obviously nobody has the perfect valve. There's always going to be an application when one valve is going to be better than the other. Mm -hmm. Nobody has the perfect material. So, but, so it's all in comparison to, to what else is, is, is out there. So, yes, yeah, so the, the, the uh, report can be used on those, uh, in those two situations for a manufacturer. You want to find out um, where are you standing and what are your weaknesses so you can improve on that. And for the end users, certainly to know, so what is that I want to buy so that it's going to work and how often do I have to replace it? Okay. Um, so, so as we, we sort of close this out, um, I just wanted to go through a couple of these things. So something that I, I thought was really neat about the presentation that you have here is you have these frequently answered questions instead of frequently <laughs> asked questions. And, um, they, they have to do with three different things, right? You have, have to do with, um, the selection of like diaphragm materials or manufacturers, they have to do with the use of them. And then they have to do with predicting them uh, or predicting what, what is going to happen, you know, beyond today. So um, is this something that you walk through um, your clients with to try to sort of help them through, or is this just a, a, a page on your website? <laughs> <laughs> no, that's actually our daily life. And yeah, it's uh, helping people through this. It's, it's, it's quite real. So, in unfortunately, many cases we don't get involved until um, it, it's already in use, or or there was um, uh, a failure that created a contamination, and are trying to help people identify the root cause and the uh, you know follow, close their capas, basically you know corrective and corrections and corrective actions. Mm -hmm. And um, and 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 that being said, I mean in general, diaphragm valves work. Um, when you look at, you know, there are great differences in between manufacturers and the materials, but in general terms, uh, what we found is that by the, by 500 SIPs, but only 3% of all of the valves that we tested, all the diaphragms, um, had a, uh, integrity issue mm -hmm. and about 17 had entrapment issues. So. I think it's fair to say that the technology works, but this is under our control conditions, right? So we have to standardize tests. They are all going through the same rage track. And, but that's not exactly the condition that people may be using them. So what we see sometimes is that by knowing what they're able to do, we're also uh, able to tell when, when they had been abused. So if they were uh, they were not installed properly if they were torqued too much or too little. So those are situations that are outside the control of the manufacturer and go more into how should I use my mm -hmm. valve. Mm -hmm. and, and with that, we also have some information in there on what should be your proper torque or the percent uh, compression when you install that diaphragm. Uh, do you need to retighten them after the initial SIP cycle or at some other um uh, milestones. Some mm -hmm. of them, many of them you do, some you may not. And so knowing how to use them is just as important as selecting the right one. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, it was, it was one of those pictures that you had, which showed entrapment, the entrapment. And when you see where all the material is along the flanges, it almost looks like, well, that looks like a, a bolt pattern issue, the way it came out. It almost looked like it all sort of went towards one of the bolts. So I, I was curious, you got to tighten them like you do a, a tire. Um, you do. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yep. Yeah. All right. Cool. Well, hey, I, this was really good. I, I, you know, we got to talk before this, um, I don't know, twice, I think. And uh, it's very interesting. I think this, this is super useful information for anybody in this space. Um, I, I just, I can't imagine why this would be anything but helpful uh, to somebody that has to take care of a facility that has, you know, hundreds and thousands of these in your facility, especially on the bigger, bigger sites. Um, but even on little sites, this is still just this thing that's always going to be maintained and always going to be changed. And um, it's, it's, it's the moving, it's moving parts, right? So it's, it's such an important thing to, to have a good handle on. And if you can help predict what's going to be going on down in the future, then you can stave off potential issues and, and, save batches potentially right we don't that's like the worst possible thing so i really i really like what this is um i i'm hoping that we could do another one of these to talk about gaskets i mean everybody's favorite thing i guess uh, sure. <laughs> uh i i'm i'm actually pretty interested to see what other stuff you guys are doing in the future but this was really interesting um this, this, we, we sort of base this off a presentation that you shared. Is this something that's available online or is this something that you just, you, you sort of do with people live? We, we do mostly uh, live with people okay. and if people would like more details and there is uh, maybe a condensed version of this in our website. Okay. So, yeah. So if you listen to this and maybe you're interested in it for your facility or, or um, uh, maybe, maybe your valve uh, manufacturer. I would expect that most of them have probably heard about this already. So, um, and probably keyed in on it. So, um, you know, you can, you can look up Malena online, either on LinkedIn or go to their website. Both of these will be linked, um, with the episode. So you can, you can check it out there. Um, but I'm, I'm really excited about this. I hope people really like what you have to say here. And I hope a whole bunch of them come and buy the report from you guys so that they can, uh, they can again pull this curtain back and see what is actually going on so thank you so much for being on today Milena really appreciate it look forward to, to talking to you again soon oh thank you thanks for having me <laughs>